verses 19 through 20. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. So Jesus says he's, it says Jesus is answering. And we have to put it in the context of what is he answering? And he's speaking to whether it's within each shot, whether the the Jews, Pharisees, and the religious leaders are, can hear him or not. It's, this is Jesus's deposition. This is what he's saying about himself in response to their persecution. Why are they persecuting him? They're persecuting him for two reasons. One of the reasons we talked about last week, which was because they said he was breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus said, no, 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 you got it wrong because my father is working. And if my father is working, Jesus is working. Now Jesus is actually answering, he, he's continuing that answer about the work that he's doing, but he's answering the fact that they said they are going to kill him because he claimed equality with God. All of this, what Jesus is going to say, has to do with the work that he is doing and the equality that he has with God the Father. So this is his answer to that equality. And when we look at that word equal, it's the word isos, which we get isosceles triangle, which is all equal sides. It's equal in nature. It's equal in status. It's equal in all things. So Jesus's claim is that I am God. Me and the Father are one. So much so, he goes into this. The Son does the work of the Father. So how many folks have children sometimes or had children or when you were a child like to imitate your parents and do certain things. You ever have kids imitate you, whether it's they imitate you in the bad ways or they may imitate you in the good ways. There's a lady tells a story about their youngest daughter. She's only two. So the youngest daughter watches them discipline the other kids, right? So parents, if you're, you know, disciplining your children, watch how you do it because the kids are looking at you. And she likes to copy them and, and, and follow in their lead. So she's only two. So the brothers, and she likes to do it to the older brother and to the older sister. The older brother wasn't eating his food. So all of a sudden, she begins to count backwards from 10. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Go to your room. Now, this girl's two years old. Guess what? She doesn't know how to count forward yet. But because she watches her parents, she now knows how to count backwards. There's another girl who was following in the steps of the the husband who compliments the wife and husbands, that's a tip, on every meal, no matter how bad it is. So the husband says, thanks, mommy, that was delicious. And then the little girl, even before she ate the meal, she goes, thanks, mommy, that was delicious. Then she proceeded to take a bite and spit the food back on her table. So In that way, her actions spoke louder than her words. But we all know that children like to imitate their their parents. But there's a limitation to that. There's a limitation 
to how far they are going to go. In relationship between the Father and Son, Jesus uses a very, very particular word. And it's a word that needs to stand out to us. And throughout this passage and throughout the Gospel of John, we see that Father and Son work harmoniously together. Jesus Christ, everything that Jesus Christ does comes from the Father. The Trinity and this relationship between Jesus and God the Father always is an example for us and including the Holy Spirit as a church to how we need to function, right? The goal of the Trinity is unity. So our goal in our church is, should be unity as well. Whenever we see the relationship aspect between the people of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that's kind of a model for us to how we are to interact. We should be in harmony with one another because of the Holy Spirit and because our job is to do what? Imitate Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us that he is obedient to God the Father. God the Father has a plan in his mind. God the Father has these works that he wants done, and Jesus submits to those works. So everything that we see Jesus doing, that is something that God has done. He acts in these priorities of work, and the priorities are the works of the Father. In the context, we have to see something here. So Jesus is saying to these religious authorities, they're thinking, and this is where we see this division. People sometimes think they're doing what? The work of God, and actually they are working against God. The religious authorities, the Jewish individuals who are trying to keep the Sabbath, think that by persecuting Jesus Christ, they are doing God's work. And Jesus corrects that understanding and says he's doing God work, God's work, and there is absolutely nothing that he can do apart from God. One commentator says that their hearts beat as one. So it reveals to us the obedience and the submissiveness of the Son to the Father and the Father's direct involvement with the work of the Son, especially his sacrifice. It's a model for us. Model for us to follow the Father. Model for us to imitate Jesus in his obedience and to be unified with God's ultimate plan. It's what we're going to be doing today. That's why we pray, right? We pray because we're asking God to guide us through the Holy Spirit, through his Son, who is head of this church. So Jesus has the plan for this church. Our goal is to try to be in line with that plan. But what happens? We're sinful. <laughs> so we don't always work well together, do we? Sometimes we have different ideas. Sometimes we want to head in different directions. I remember when I, I first married my lovely bride, she brought to our marriage a toolbox. I was like, oh, that's a cute little toolbox, cute little blue little toolbox. I had a big metal craftsman toolbox. I don't use it, but I had it because I'm a guy. 
And if you, I thought I needed to fulfill that role as the tool guy, right? This one who needs to, to fix things, even though I'm mechanically declined. However, when, when we had projects, so projects started coming up because we had, we had a fixer-upper, so we had a, we had a ton of projects in our house. Sarah brought along her little toolbox, and I learned that she liked to do projects. So we would begin these projects, and we would start them together. And when I was doing these projects with Sarah, I realized something. She doesn't have the same plan in, my, in her head that I had in my head, nor did she have the same way of going about accomplishing the plan. As a matter of fact, sometimes we were doing two different things. And the end result was God's plan of sanctification for my marriage. So young folks, if you, if you want to grow in your relationship, really, if you want to grow in your relationship with anyone, work together. That's how God is going to work out his ultimate plan of sanctification. It is not so with the son and the father. They have the same idea in their mind. And I say this over and over and over again, and sometimes people want to separate God the Father and Jesus the Son. God the Father, the God of the Old Testament, is revealed to us in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. They're on the same page. They act in complete harmony. And this sharing of the plan is done out of love. Notice what Jesus says here. He says it is out of love. He loves, the Father loves the Son and shows him these works. Initially, I thought that word for love would be the agape word for love. It's the agape word for love. It's the phileo, which we get our word Philadelphia. You know Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, which it is not the city of brotherly love at all. It's the city of brotherly hate. But here we have the actual embodiment of this brotherly or friendship love. They share these things together. Isn't that interesting? When we look and see what Jesus does in the New Testament, so when Jesus smiled, do you know who's smiling? That's God smiling. When Jesus has mercy on Mary Magdalene, that's God having mercy. When Jesus looks up and sees little Zacchaeus in the tree and says, come on down, Zacchaeus, I'm going to have dinner at your house, that's God having dinner with Zacchaeus. When Jesus sits with sinners, that's God sitting and eating with sinners. Jesus does, did everything he saw the Father do, and these two works are now explained to us. So the first work, the Son gives life like the Father, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he wishes. So as I said, these are the, the, he gives two examples of, and these are the primary works of Jesus, but he's also speaking to the work that he just did. What did Jesus just do? He healed the paralytic. So he's saying this is the work that God has already done or wants him to do. He wants people to have life. And so now Jesus explains exactly what they just saw him or heard him do, which was give life to the paralytic. It's important for us to keep the context in mind 
because he's giving this explanation to those who are opposing him. The famous American writer, her name was uh, Susan Sontag. Uh, She died of cancer in 2004 at the age of 71. When her cancer had first returned after a long remission, she was struggling desperately against it. She refused to hear that she was dying, even in the midst of her treatments. She constantly spoke of what she would do when she got out of the hospital, when she would take up her reins of life. The future, living, and getting back to work was everything to this woman. She said she would do the things she'd always want to do rather than wasting her time doing the things that were only done out of duty. Her son claimed that she concentrated her limited energy as she fought against this as a revolt against death. She was angry, and she died, unreconciled to her own extinction. Sontag, she didn't believe in God. She didn't believe in life after death. Her hope consisted in treatment, in the medical field, and in scientific data. Weeping and panicked as she neared her death, she told the nurse that she was dying, with the implication that the whole thing was absurd. Reflecting on his mother's body in a parish graveyard beside other famous writers, the son concluded this, Unless you believe in spirits or the Christian fairy tale of resurrection, those who have died cease to exist. I see a connection here. I don't know if you see the connection as well, but... This woman revolted against death because she thought life to be things that it was not. She saw life in the wrong areas. She saw life as living. She saw life as work. She saw life as whatever she thought it was. It was an improper view of life. And what life is all about, and it resulted in a revolt against death. She thought and she sought life in all of the wrong places. In this gospel, the word life is used 47 times around in the ESV translation. The majority of those times, it refers to a spiritual life. What do you think... John and Jesus are trying to tell us. Where is life to be found? One person in Jesus Christ. As soon as we begin to seek life outside of Christ, and even Christians seek life outside of Christ, we're going to fail. And for us, yes, Jesus is speaking to a physical resurrection, However, that physical resurrection is made possible because of the spiritual life that he gives us here and now. This life, the life that I can have in Jesus Christ, the life that he offers you, 
He died for your sins. Those sins is sometimes where we seek our life. It's where we seek our fulfillment. He's saying, no, that's wrong. Those sins are what are going to lead you to death. Seek life in me. I'll give you spiritual life now. And because I'll give you spiritual life now, your body will never undergo decay. That's his promise. And that is what he is stating here, but he's stating a few things. Throughout this passage, Jesus is saying, I'm God. And the prerogatives, the power that God has, guess what? I have it too. Just as God raises the dead, Jesus Christ gives life to whom he wishes. To whoever. Just like he did to the paralytic. There was nothing in that man. It wasn't... He wasn't a special paralytic. He was a paralytic. He was, he was paralyzed. And Jesus picked him out and he says, here, do you want to walk? Go ahead. Cheers. That's the life that Jesus has to answer, that, that Jesus has to offer us. Do you know that one of the most popular courses in the history of Yale University, Yale University, you would think it would be like Thermodynamics 101 or something like that, or, or whatever it is. The most popular course was offered in the fall of 2017. It was Psychology and the Good Life. People want to know, how can I live a good and satisfying life? And that's what one prof professor says that she teaches her students in that class how to live a more happy and satisfying life. Folks, I'm going to tell you the, the simplest answer of all is to give that life, your life, to Jesus Christ. That is the most satisfying life you'll ever have, I promise you. You're talking to someone who has tried life in all other areas and has only come up empty and caused pain and hurt and dissatisfaction. He gives life. He gives life because he's God. And the life that he promises us begins here and now, spiritually. And Jesus is going to get into spiritually raising the dead. Before Jesus Christ, I was dead. I was dead in my sins and my trespasses. You can go and you can see a moment in time when I no longer began to engage in those behaviors that I used to engage in because it was those behaviors that I thought were filling me and satisfying me. Now, do I still sin? Absolutely. Just not as much and like I used to, right? Hopefully that's the goal. It's, Jesus is transforming us. Yale wasn't surprised by that because years prior, almost half their student population sought mental health counseling. People are looking for life in all the wrong answers. I think that one of the works that Jesus is speaking about that they're going to marvel about is exactly what he's saying here, and that's the work of Lazarus. Just later on, we see Jesus does what? Does what he says. Lazarus is dead three days. 
And he calls his name and he says, Lazarus, come forth. People say that if he didn't say the name Lazarus, everyone would have came forth. These are the claims of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of who he, who he is. Again, if you want a hill to stand on, this is where it's at. Jesus is God. And only Jesus Christ can give us eternal life. And only Jesus Christ holds the keys over that grave. You know, Jesus, he's making a claim here that would, would make the religious leaders, their hair, stand on, it, on their heads. Because they knew only God could raise the dead. As a matter of fact, in the story of Naaman, we're all familiar with Naaman, when they wrote the letter to the king about healing Naaman, the king says this, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? No. So it's seen biblically, but it's also seen in their own tradition. There's a guy named Rabbi Johanan, and he said God holds three keys. Three keys that he has not given to any of his representatives. So if he hasn't given them to any of his representatives then Jesus just isn't a representative, is he? Those three keys, the key to reign, the key to childbirth, and the key over the resurrection of the dead. Do you want life? You want to enter into the door of life, real life? How many people here want to live forever? Not your question. <laughs> it's okay. You can say yes. How many people want resurrected bodies that don't have pain, suffering, sin, or anything going on with those things? Okay, you want that? You know who can, who can let you through that door? The one with the key. His name is Jesus Christ. He has those keys. But I'm gonna, I, I got to tell you something. That's the good news, right? Believe in Jesus, you're going to live forever. Believe in Jesus one day, our bodies are going to be made new all over again. Because this isn't the way it was supposed to be. But there's bad news. There's bad news. And we, we have to speak both if we're going to talk about the truth of who Jesus is and what he does. Leads us to the second point. If we don't, if we don't receive him as Savior, if we don't accept him as the life giver, we're going to see him as judge. The Father has given all judgment. To the Son, verses 22 through 23a. We'll break it off halfway there. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given not some judgment, not a little bit of judgment, he's given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. While aggression and racist remarks are vicious and foolish at the best of times, a Chicago man recently learned that some people are particularly unwise to pick on. There was a man, and he was angry that a 79-year-old woman was smoking near him. 
So this man named David Nicosia started an argument with her. This argument led to him slapping her in the face and spitting upon her, calling her Rosa Parks because of the color of her skin. Unbeknownst to Mr. Nicosia, she's no ordinary woman. Her name, the Honorable Judge Arnett Hubbard. Not only that, she was an activist and a, a very loud voice on, you guessed it, civil rights and women's issues. Deputies immediately came to her defense, and this man is looking at four charges of aggravated battery and a hate crime besides the unenviable prospect of having to explain his actions to another judge, likely one of her friends. Folks, right now in our story, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, are judging Jesus, slapping him in the face. Pilate is going to judge Jesus, slap him in the face. These guys and those who judge Jesus incorrectly, they're not going to meet one of Jesus' friends as judge. They're going to meet him face to face. For us, who believe in Christ, this is comforting because right now things are being judged incorrectly, aren't they? People are calling good evil and evil good. People are saying to Christians who are trying to love people by telling them the truth that you're haters, you hate. It's bigotry. People are saying that one word means this and another word means this and really words have no meaning whatsoever, but whatever we want to make them out to be. People are saying all of these things and we can look around and we can get discouraged, can't we? And people are denying this very truth. They're denying that Jesus ever said he was God. They're saying Jesus was a moral teacher. He was a nice guy. He's a good example to follow. And they are judging Jesus incorrectly. Folks, all of us have to judge Jesus. We have to make a decision. Is, is Jesus who he says he is? Because if he, if he is who he says he is, then... I probably should do something about that truth. Or do I take these claims and do I say, he's not. He's not who he says he is. And I'm going to go and I'm going to keep slapping him in the face. I'm going to keep not listening to his people. I'm going to keep not listening to his word. I'm here to warn you. If what Jesus Christ says is true... He's going to judge all of it. 
This is God's love. Warnings are, are God's love, aren't they? He, he doesn't want you to head down that path. Right now, the, the religious leaders in our story, they want to kill him because he's telling them the truth of who he is. He can't deny that he's God. Then he'd be lying. Either Jesus is God or he's nobody. There, there's no middle happy ground. Nothing. It's not. It doesn't exist. It's illogical because he claims it right here. Again, judgment was reserved for God Almighty. That's the one who gets to judge. Now, God's handed that over to Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, he will judge you. I, I don't want to say that in a, in a bad way. I'm just letting you know that th these are the facts. This is what's going to happen. And our job, because we believe that, we should be telling everybody that truth. We don't want them to be judged. We don't want that because we love them. We want them to have life. We want them to believe. But if we believe this, then we're responsible for that. Watched a movie the other night. It's called uh, Sophie Scholl. I think that's how you say it. I'm not sure. It's a German movie. Uh, very, very, very powerful movie. I recommend it. Subtitles. But actually, I learned that watch, reading subtitles makes me pay more attention to what's being said than all of that other stuff that's going around. She was a German student. And she and her brother and some other folks were part of an organization called, was it White Rose? White, White Rose Movement. And they would distribute uh, anti-Nazi leaflets on campuses and try to tell people the truth. They got caught. And the, the movie uh, progresses through about her spending time in jail and then eventually just true story, eventually going to trial. This German guy walks in, and he was so mean. I, I'm not, I, just, in, I know he's an actor. He had me convinced. And I'm, I'm just trying to think of what those people went through during that time period and how everything that came out of that man's mouth was a lie. And there he was, sitting as judge over these individuals who were doing the right thing, trying to save their country, trying to let people know this is wrong. And in that trial, he ends up and he pronounces death upon them, death by hanging. And the brother, throughout the trial, reminds him one or two times, Basically saying, we're standing here today. It's going to be you tomorrow. You may hang us today. It's going to be you. And we know it was. Nuremberg, right? Those individuals that stood judgment, saying something was right, were then judged by the ones they judged.
that's what's going to happen. We stand judgment in Jesus, and if we judge Him wrongly, we need to face the outcome of that decision. I think we, 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 we look at Jesus and we see him, gentle Jesus, and he is, and merciful Jesus, and he is, and compassionate Jesus, and he is, but people think that's the same Jesus that they're going to meet afterwards. You know, this verse in Revelation, this is Jesus. His eyes are on fire. He's wearing crowns. What's coming from his mouth? It's a sword. To do what? To strike down the nations who have rejected him. Life or judgment. The purpose of handing him the judgment is so that what? He receives what? The same honor as the Father because they are equal. Brings us to his point. Guy tells a story about Dr. Kumari, she's the president of the Lutheran Church in India, and he believes she was the executive, executive director of the Theological Commission of the Lutheran World Federation. That's a pretty big job, making sure the theology or the doctrine is correct. He said she's a very impressive woman. They were at this conference, and he said in the mornings he, would, he was teaching through John chapter 1 for all he was worth. The theme of that, as it is in the Gospel of John and really everywhere, is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way. And again, as he says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God before but God the Son, who's at the very heart of the Father, only he has explained him. He said in the evenings, Dr. Kumari was teaching that, that indeed Christ is the way for the Christian. However, she added something. She said in India, a sincere Hindu can also get to God. And she said, it's the same for the Buddhists, and so on, and so on. She said, the ordinary way of salvation is sincere devotion to one's own religious tradition. She said, the extraordinary way is Jesus Christ. She said, as long as people are sincere, they can be saved. He said, Dr. Kumari and I were going in two different directions. It's exactly what the religious leaders of Jesus' day are doing. Jesus wants them to know something. They think they're honoring God. And Jesus says, you can't honor the Father if you dishonor the Son. We can't get to God apart from Jesus Christ. In no name under heaven must men be saved. They think that 
they are doing the works of God. And he says, I'm doing the works of God. They think that they are God's judges. And he says, I'm God's judge. They think that they find life apart from Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the only one who can give you life. Commentator concludes D.A. Carson, and he says this, there's only one conclusion that you and I can make from this text. There's no middle ground. In a theistic universe, such a statement of what Jesus just says about honoring him and honoring the Father, it belongs to one who is to be addressed as God or it's insanity. Two options, Jesus is God or he's, he's insane. He continues and he says, The one who says such things is to be dismissed with pity or ridicule, or he's to be worshipped as Lord. And he says, if we think these are not his claims and just the claims or the wishful thinking of John who is writing this, then John is deluded. And John must be dismissed as a fool, or his testimony about Jesus is true. And he needs to be ascribed the honors that is due to God alone. There is no middle ground, folks. And if you're not convinced about that, come and see me and I'll send you over to the bar's house. And I'm sure those girls will set you straight. Father... We thank you for Christ, and we know that the truths that we talk about, they can divide. They don't need to, but they do. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone listening here today that has not placed their trust in Jesus Christ, that they do so, that they see he is offering them a life that they cannot find apart from him, a life that begins now and a life that continues for all eternity. Please, Lord, help them to see that. Help them not to seek life in any other areas. Lord, we ask as we meet together as your church that you work through all of us. In Jesus' name we pray.